Well, let's begin our reading in James chapter 5 and beginning in verse 13. It says, Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back... Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A lot of times we kind of come to prayer looking for the science of prayer. Science deals with formulas that if you pray in this way, or and it's not just a confusion within Christianity, it's a confusion around the world. You know, you look at other religions of the world and they have confusion. You have to pray facing a certain direction and you have to pray pronouncing all the words just right. And they make a real rigid formula out of it. You may not even understand the words that you're quoting, but as long as you pronounce them correctly and you're faced the right direction and you do it at the right times of the day, then your prayers are heard. That's kind of boiling prayer down to a science. If you get together the right formula, then prayer is successful. Prayer really is actually kind of more like an art than a science. And it's not just a matter of getting a formula that becomes successful. It is communication with the God who created you. It's hard to pin down an exact formula for prayer, but yet we still find ourselves wanting to do it. There are things to learn about prayer, so that's that's an important aspect of it. But we can never quite get it to where it completely satisfies us. We see it even in Scripture. You know, Jesus' disciples would come to Jesus and say, you know what, John's disciples taught him how to pray. You teach us how to pray. When you look at how many books on prayer that are out there, we have a hunger to know how to pray and do it right, but often we try to reduce it to that formula. And it's really, though there are some things about it that are science, kind of a little bit, It's a lot of it's more towards art. Well, James and all the practical insights that he's given them and, and practical instruction that he's given them through the book, He ends with what is one of the most practical subjects, and that is prayer and how it fits into our life. Now, there's a little confusion around this passage, and there has been for over a thousand years. About the 8th century, the Catholic Church came up with a sacrament of extreme unction. And that's where if somebody's a good Catholic, but they're in danger of passing away soon, then the Catholic priest will go and perform the sacrament over them that is supposed to bring them healing and and usher them into the presence of God. At the same time, within Protestant Christianity, you also find some people with uh, kind of the name-it-claim-it philosophy, we'd call it, uh, use this in support of their understanding that anytime anybody's sick, you name your sickness and that you are now healed and claim that and then you will be healed on every occasion. Though experience teaches us otherwise and Scripture teaches us otherwise also uh, very clearly, they would look to this passage and say, hey, look and see what this passage says. Well, this passage actually is not technically about healing. But this passage is very ab- absolutely about prayer. 
In fact, other than the last two verses, the word prayer is found in every verse in the entire passage. And at times when he doesn't use the same exact word, he uses other things that refer to it. Things like confessing is part of prayer as as well. Praise is part of prayer. And so this passage is just repeatedly over and over points to prayer. When James was writing this letter, he said, lastly, the last thing that you really need to focus on, the important thing you really need to have in your life is prayer. And that's what we need in our life as well. Prayer is like a divine conduit. It taps us into the divine presence of God and brings God's help to be applied to our needs. It brings us before the throne of God where we can better understand His will in our life and submit to His will in our life and be an impact in the plan of God as our prayers line up with His will to accomplish great things to His honor and glory. As we consider this this morning, this subject of prayer in this passage, the first aspect that he deals with is the participants of prayer. And there's actually a couple different ways that you can break this down. One of the ways that I see him bringing it down is by, well, first of all, he deals with individuals. In verse 13, he calls individuals to pray. Notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so he just says, look, whatever circumstance you're in, then you need to pray. And so he starts out by calling individuals to pray. But then he doesn't leave it there. He also points to the leadership. And he says, look, you know what? Our pastors, they need to be praying for you. And so bring your request to them. And the leadership of the church should be praying for you. In verse 14, he says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're going through these struggles, if you're going through this suffering, then don't bear it alone. Call the pastor, call the elders of the church, get them together and have them pray over you. Have them pray for you. That's a vital part of the ministry. If you look back at the apostles when they were establishing the church and it came down to a decision, they were helping to take care of the widows and they were setting up a a fund and and the ability to take care of them. The apostles said, you know what? Let's appoint deacons to take care of this so that we continue to focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so they really focus on those two aspects, prayer and the ministry of the Word. Well, if that's the case, then just as important as us coming together to hear the preaching of the Word of God each week, we also need to be gathering together to be praying for the needs. In fact, that's why prayer has a prominent part earlier in our service to pray for needs of people as we have them declared to us. And so the leadership needs to be praying. Now, in the previous one, notice it says, let him pray in verse 13. It says, anybody that's suffering, let him pray. Uh, in, in verse 14, what does it say? Let them pray. And so he's moved from, from calling individuals to pray for your own issues to then going to the leadership and getting them to pray for you as well. But then he doesn't leave it there either. He calls the whole church into the process. Up into verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That little phrase, one another, is all over the New Testament. The church is all about experiencing life with one another. And there's really no way, in fact, even, you know, I'm thankful for like our Facebook streaming and, uh, and being out on YouTube and being on the radio and television and all that kind of stuff. That's a message and those are beneficial. And I'm glad that other ministries are doing it because I tap into some others and I find those very valuable. But you know what? It's not church. It's not the gathering. It's not the family meeting where you're a participant, not just a viewer. 
God has called us to this relationship with Himself and a relationship with one another as His children before His throne. And so, as, yes, as much as I like, and I'm glad that we have those other ministries going out there, they're not to be the substitute. They're for like when you've got to miss, when you're sick or you're traveling, or, or even if, if it's somebody that's tuning into us that goes to another church, it's not to replace their church. It's for some added help. But you know what? That's what he says. He says, one another. You need to get before one another. Confess your sins to one another. doesn't mean you need to empty your whole life, but gain strength from one another. Be open and vulnerable to one another and gain that accountability. Gain that prayer support. He says, pray for one another. And so when we consider that, he calls us as individuals to pray. He calls leadership to pray. He calls the whole church to be involved in praying over one another. You could also break it down, as I said, another way, because he calls those who are suffering to pray. He calls those who are celebrating to praise. And he calls those who are struggling with sin to confess. And so you can also break it down by kind of like what's going on in your life. So the first thing that we see is the participants of prayer. We all need to be praying. But then also the next thing he explains to us is the forms of prayer. He uses several different words to refer to kind of different aspects of the prayers that we're to be offering up. The first one we see is petition. That's when you're just before God and you're just asking Him for something. And we find that in verse 13 because He says, look, if any of you is suffering, then you know what you need to do? You need to go to God. You know, James has already hit on this back in chapter 1 when he was dealing with trials. And he says, there's wisdom available to you. In fact, he said there's kind of an unlimited source of wisdom that's available to you. He says, you just got to pray. You got to ask God for wisdom. He says, God will give you the wisdom that you need and He won't chastise you for it. You need to pray for your own situations, your own struggles. All those things that you're thinking about, all those things that you're caring about, all those things that you're stressing about, you know what you need to do? Pray about those things. It, it doesn't take any more time to pray about them than it does to think about them. It doesn't take any more energy to pray about them than it does to stress about them. In fact, I would say it takes less energy to do that and has a much better outcome. But then, not only is there a petition, just asking God for things on an individual level, but there's also praise. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It says, let him sing praise. The word is literally the word that we get our word psalm from for the book of Psalms. And when you look at Psalms, it's a great example of, of what he's calling us to in this word because David, no matter whether he's in the dumps or up on high, and he wrote most of the Psalms, he is singing it out to God. Part of our prayer should be petition where we're asking God for things, asking Him to get involved in our situation. Another part of prayer is that we should be praising Him. But then not only that, notice also He calls us to intercession. He calls us to intercession. Intercession means that you're going to intercede for somebody else. In James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, here's the discussion that goes around this passage. What exactly is that talking about? Is it talking about a physical sickness? We pray weekly for people that are going through physical difficulties, that are dealing with cancers and brain tumors. and We pray regularly for people going through those things. And I'm very much in favor of that. But in this passage, what exactly is he talking about? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm very sure that's not what he's talking about. 
The reason is because of our understanding of a couple different words within this passage. If we get a better understanding of the words that they use to communicate this, we'll know more clearly what exactly it is in reference to. Because at first reading, it looks like if anybody's sick, in other words, if anybody has pneumonia or cancer or different things, then bring them before the church, anoint their head with oil, and pray over them, and then they will go out the door healed. But that's not exactly what it's talking about. When it says, is any among you sick? If you look throughout the New Testament, you will find that that word is translated in different ways. It can mean physical sickness, though it doesn't prominently mean physical sickness. This word is often translated not sickness, but weakness. Let's look at a couple of examples. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Weakened by the flesh. Is it talking about a physical ailment? No. It's talking about us in and of our flesh without the Spirit. The law can't really accomplish anything but condemnation. And so it's a spiritual weakness is what this word is used to describe there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 9, He says, "...for we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong." Your restoration is what we pray for. He's talking about them being diminished so that these Corinthians could be lifted up. This word weakness is used around the Bible. To, sometimes it talks about financial weakness. They're poor. And it will use that word weakness to describe their poverty. And so this word weakness can be a physical ailment, but it can also be a spiritual malady, a financial deal, a a spiritual truth as far as how you compare to somebody else, somebody strong in the faith versus somebody that's weak in the faith. And so it's really this idea of, of weakness. First Corinthians 8 9, it says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He identifies them as weak. They're not physically sick. They're weak in their faith. Well, when you look at the book of James, what are we looking at? Who does he address the letter to? People that were part of the diaspora, part of the dispersion. People that because of the persecution, they were scattered abroad. And he says, count it all joy when you enter into all these trials. You're under these trials. The very next thing he deals with is temptations. They're dealing with trials from the outside and temptations from the inside. And they've got some backbiting and arguing and fighting going on amongst them. And they have a struggle of understanding what exactly even is the nature of faith. He says, if any of you are suffering, if any of you are weak, not sick, not, he's not talking about physical ailments like cancer and stuff like that. He says, if any of you are weak, if you just feel like you are beaten down, that's what he's talking about. He says, if you are weak, then you need to bring it before the pastors and have them anoint you with oil and pray over you so that you can be healed. But then notice his answer to it a little bit Farther on, he says, Bring before the elder church, let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, that word sick right there is only found in one other place in the Bible. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12. Talking about Christ enduring the cross. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. And so the second word translated sick in James is actually the word translated in Hebrews as grow weary. That's the idea of this second word. So you don't grow weary. And so what he's saying is, if you are going through some suffering and you find yourself to be weak in faith, you're struggling in your faith, you're growing weary in your faith, 
then don't just limit yourself to your own prayers. Pray for yourself, but then get into your pastors. Get into the leadership of the church and get them praying on your behalf. Get that accountability lined up. Let them know what's going on in your life and get them involved in your situation. That's what he's telling them here at the church. He's saying, don't try to handle it all on your own. And then there's also this idea, well, what, what exactly is the oil for? Well, that's an interesting word too. It was customary at that time, this anointing of oil. You've seen it in your reading of the New Testament. Jesus has a lady come up and anoint his feet with oil. And Jesus would even uh, ridicule the people that had him for dinner. He says, when I came in, you didn't anoint my head with oil. When you look back at not only the Bible itself, but other, other uh, literature outside the Bible, oil was used as the main, the main cures for what cures what ails you. You know, you ever seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding? The guy's always spraying Windex on everybody for every ailment. Well, that was oil back at that time. They put oil on, on everything. That's what they treated everything with. When I was a kid, it was hydrogen peroxide. My mom dumped hydrogen peroxide on me every time I scraped anything. And it actually, it's interesting, the word that James uses that's translated anoint here is not the word for ceremonial anointing. There was a different word that they used for anointing somebody like to become a leader or something like that. That's a ceremonial anointing is a different word used altogether. Actually, the word used here is the idea of rub oil on them. It was about like what we would think about rubbing lotion on yourself. And so when James talks about anointing them with oil, he doesn't use the word like bring them up for a ceremony and you know put a cross on the forehead or something like that. It's not that kind of anointing. It's a different word entirely. They're wounded, rub some oil on it. They're weary, refresh them. Put oil on them. Refresh them. So some of it would have been physical because if they're actually enduring physical suffering, they would have needed some oil rubbed on them for physical issues. But even if it's not just physical, if it's spiritual, that oil being rubbed on them would have, would have given them kind of at ease, helped them to a calmness, and just a, would have been refreshing to them. That's really what he's calling them to do. Notice also the connection. If you're talking about physical ailments like sicknesses, like cancer and stuff, then why does he bring confession of sin into it? That doesn't really make any sense. But as part of this, in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The point is, if you're weary, you're beaten down, you're, you're weak in your faith, maybe you've even come to where you've but participated in sin, you've fallen into sin because of the weakness of your struggle, then you know what? You confess that sin. You get on the right track. It all makes sense. If it's a spiritual weakness, it's a weakness in our faith from being beat down by the persecutions and the, and the problems and the suffering going on in your life and you're feeling weak, then you get refreshed from this. Then it all makes total sense. It all fits together very nicely. Otherwise, parts of it just feel very disjointed from one another. Also, the idea of being healed. He tells us if we do this, we'll be healed. Well, the word heal is a very generic term as well. It can mean all kinds of different healing. It can be translated to be made whole or to be saved even. It can be used of all kinds of different healings or being made whole in that sense. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, it says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Again, not a physical healing, but of a spiritual blindness. 
Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 12 through 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, the same word healed speaking of a spiritual condition, not a physical one. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Very clearly, Peter here is talking about uh, the salvation that we experience in Christ. Obviously, not talking about a physical ailment, but talking about a spiritual healing, about receiving salvation. And so that word healing can mean a variety of these different things. Commonly, a spiritual healing, a spiritual saving, not a physical one. And then also as we consider it, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Remember, the point that we're establishing is that our prayer needs to be intercession. In other words, we're praying for other people. And James is saying, you know what, when somebody, when you're suffering, you need to get before the leadership of the church and let them pray for you. Let them intercede on your behalf. And your weakness can be overcome. Your weariness can turn to refreshment and healing in your faith. But then he also points in the last two verses to the necessity, the importance of this. He says we need to be praying for one another. We need to be confessing our sins. Why? Because when somebody's headed the wrong way, when they're turning and wandering away from the faith, you have to question the legitimacy of their faith. You need to bring them back. If they don't come back, then they show their faith to be insincere and outside of the salvation of God. And so he says we cannot just let one another wander off. We cannot just let them go down the wrong path. We need that kind of accountability baked in. And a lot of that accountability is experienced inside of our praying with and for one another. Well, not only that, but we also see is confession is part of that. In verse 15, he says, And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Part of our prayer should also be with confession. We should be regularly confessing our sins before God. Confess means to say the same thing. In other words, to agree together with God about our sins so that we can put them behind us. And so, confession needs to be part of our prayer life as well. So, so far we've looked at the participants of prayer. The last thing that he points out is the power of prayer. He uses Elijah as an example. And notice that in Elijah, he uses him not as a contrast, but as a comparison. He says Elijah is made of the same stuff that you are. That's encouraging. Now, God did use him to do some pretty amazing miracles and stuff like that that aren't common in every era. And so we recognize there's a difference. But Elijah, there's times when he stood up courageous, and there's also times when he ran like a coward. And I, I think we can probably recognize some of both of those in all of our lives. And that's what he's doing. He's saying Elijah's made the same stuff as you are. He says in the last part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. The word is the word that we get our word energy from, that word for power. Well, he goes on in verses 17 and 18, says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I always wrestled with this. What exactly is the point? I mean, some of the more practical ones, I obviously get it. You need to pray with some fervency and everything, right? But what is the lesson from Elijah? It seemed like a weird example to give at that point of Elijah. Even the Old Testament, you go back and look at it, it doesn't give a lot of information about it. 
The real lesson in prayer, though it's somewhat contained in verse 17, I think the real lesson is in verse 18. Because verse 17 sets up the scenario. What is the scenario? That Elijah prayed and uh, no rain for three and a half years. So now, what's the scenario? The land hasn't had any water for three and a half years. It's dead. It's weary. It's in desperate need of refreshment. Kind of like what we've been talking about in the context up to this point. Pour oil on them. Refresh them. Rub them down. The land that Elijah, because of the first prayer to stop the rain, the land is arid. It's drying up. It's dying. Now, what is verse 18? Verse 18 is refreshment and life. Because Elijah calls out to God, and what does God do? God sends the rain. And what is he telling these people, you people that are feeling dried up and dead because of the trials from without and the temptations from within and the struggles within the church and all these things that are going on, the suffering that you're going on, you're feeling so dried up and dead and beaten down and weary. Here comes the refreshment from God. Just like in Elijah's day, God brought that refreshment back upon the land. God will refresh you. He will raise you up. He will strengthen you. You see, that's the point that he's getting at right there. That's how Elijah and this whole story ties back into that context. These people that are weakened down and beat up spiritually can now come out on top victorious. Why? Because as they pray for themselves, you get other people praying for them, and you have people praising, and the leadership praying for you, and everybody praying for one another, and confessing their sins to one another, sin being forgiven of their sins. That is where we find the refreshment of God. That's where we find that forgiveness that he talked about as well. This power of prayer, we see a couple things. One and one of the things that he says is it needs to be fervent, and it needs to be righteous. Now, righteousness comes from, one, our righteousness in Christ. Because otherwise, when you read through that, you say, boy, we're in big trouble because Romans tells us that nobody's righteous. No, not one. That's true, but Romans also tells us that we have Christ's righteousness imputed to our account, given to us. And so we have the righteousness of Christ as we stand before God, having put our faith in Jesus Christ. But I think that there's two things here. There's an imputed righteousness, which is a positional righteousness, When we get Christ's righteousness, our position before God is that we are righteous. But then there's a practical righteousness that we have to flesh out that righteousness of Christ. We've got to live that in our lives. And so we have the righteousness of Christ, but now we need to live that out. We need to flesh that out. And that's what Elijah was doing. Elijah was a righteous man. He was living out a life of faithfulness to God. We get that through Christ in our relationship with Him. But then also, he talks about this fervency that Elijah prayed with. In other words, he was paying attention to it. It was something that he was focused on very much so. And that, in fact, that's the word I would use. It needs to be focused prayer as well. So it needs to be righteous prayer coming from you in the righteousness of Christ and living out that righteousness before God. And it also needs to be a focused prayer. Sometimes my grandkids come to me and they want something from me and I'm in the middle of something, maybe a conversation with somebody else, and they have to wait a minute. And we have a little system that that they, you do that you let them know that you know that they're there and they're waiting. So they, they'll often wait patiently. But sometimes by the time I get to them, I say, okay, what was it? They're like, um, never mind. <laughs> or I forgot or whatever, and they, and they leave, you know. And, and other times, boy, they just got it right there. In fact, they, they're, they're, they're waiting for you. They're ready for it, and they got it right there. Well, what is God saying here? He's not talking about those things that you bring to God and you pray about one time and then you never think about them again. Uh, How many times have you found yourself maybe asking God for something, maybe even repeatedly, and then you go down the road and God answers a prayer and you never even recognize that He answered it? 
Anybody else have that experience or am I the only ungrateful one? I found myself doing that. And I say, man, God answered that prayer, but I didn't even think to thank Him for it because I was already kind of moved off to thinking to other things. Well, God is saying, you know what? The prayer that I'm looking for, the prayer that I really want is the prayer where you're in tune and you're looking for the answer and you're talking to me about it and you keep talking to me about it and you keep raising the subject. He says, that's what Elijah did. And that's what our prayer needs to be like. So at the end of this very practical book of James, we find some very practical advice. We can accomplish as much or more through prayer than we can through our own activities. A friend of Martin Luther's once said that he never knew Martin Luther to spend less than three hours a day in prayer and that Martin Luther always gave the most productive part of the day to prayer. Prayer is practical. Who are the participants in prayer? We all are. We need to pray individually. We need to bring our prayers before leadership. We need to pray collectively as the whole church. What are the forms of prayer? We need to be involved in petition, asking God for things praising God for things, interceding on others' behalf, trying to uh, uphold our people as they deal with weaknesses and temptations and struggles. And confession needs to be part of our prayer as well as we confess our sins before God and receive the forgiveness that we can have. And we do all that, why? Because there's a tremendous amount of power in prayer.